0: Welcome to a world where mysteries still exist. Come into the room. I'm sure you notice the nicely polished wood, the shelves full of books. Some are recognized old favorites, some are unusual and ancient looking. The smell is one of smoke, tobacco, and leather. Pull up a chair next to the fire. Pour yourself a drink. I have a fully stocked bar with all of your favorites. Now let's share it with one another as we spend time in the study. There's a lot of things that it can stand for. Sweaty, steamy, sultry, sexy, and the South. Of course, this time of year, the uh, sweaty and steamy are the more accurate terms to describe it. And I tell you, a lot of people who haven't lived here just don't understand how anyone could stand that weather, let alone love it. But I do. I like the heat, I like the summertime, and I love the South. And that's why a lot of the things that I discuss or, or look at in routines have to do with where I grew up and family. Those are important things to me, and I like to carry those through in my routines. But I want to tell you about a time where it was really hot and steamy. And uh, another good term that starts with a nest at that time might be stupid. I just finished up. College and had moved up to a town called Fayetteville, Arkansas, with my college roommate, who convinced me to move up there because we really had nothing better to do. And he said that it would be a whole lot of fun. So I decided, why not? It didn't hurt that the girl I was dating was also moving up there. We weren't serious enough for me to move for her, but it probably ended up being a good decision since she's now my wife. But anyway, I'm getting away from the point of the story. We had a house that we lived in up there that was a basement literally it was the basement of a house and there was no air conditioning and though Fayetteville is in the mountains and it's not as hot as it is down where I live now which is near the Mississippi River Delta region it was still pretty warm and we were up late one night and we were trying to take the heat off by drinking plenty of cold beer my roommate said hey there's this really cool place we can go. It's out on the lake. There ought to be a good breeze. we can take our beer. And we hopped in his uh, his little vehicle. He had a little, like a Suzuki Samurai, it had 4x4 four four on it. We called it 16 because it was so small. It's irrelevant. But we always thought that was funny and laughed at calling his vehicle Sixtina. So we hop in 16 and we hit the road. And uh, we've got the top down on this thing, so there's plenty of air blowing by us. and. In the summertime, if you've been out uh, in the South in the summertime, even with the top down, it's not particularly cool. It's just blowing a lot of hot air past you, but that's a lot better than sitting in the very still hot air. So we're drinking our beer, riding out here, and I asked him, where are we going? He said, oh, it's cool. It's out by this lake. There's this cool old building out here. It's part of this underground or underwater city. It's like an underwater city. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's This underwater city. Apparently there was a city there, and when they built this lake, they flooded part of the city. So we get out there, and uh, it's pretty late at night, and no one's around. And you can see out in the lake part of a tower rising up out of the lake. And he's like, come on, man, usually you can get over to the tower. And I'm looking, it looks like everything is submerged. But then uh, in the moonlight, you can see a little bit of a pathway. So, basically, we had to jump from concrete pad to concrete pad over parts of the lake until we got to the tower. So, we're jumping with a six-pack of beer on these concrete pads trying to get to the tower, and we do get to it, and climb up, and uh, on the second floor, there was a fireplace and windows that looked out over the lake, the moon was out, and it was really, really pretty, and uh, we sat there on the floor and... Cracked open some beers and just hung out and, and talked. And uh, it got hot though. We were in a concrete tower and uh, the wind was blowing, so I decided to go to the window and look out over the lake and really let that wind hit me. And as I looked out over the lake, like I say, the moon was out and it's reflecting on the water, and I see kind of a, a shadow of something. And it gets a little closer and I can see a light on a boat. And I turned to my friend and, and said, Hey, Marcus. Are the people out on the lake at night? He said, no, not, not typically. So there's, you know, the underground city and stuff, so people don't really come out here because they can tear up the bottoms of the boat. So I look, and I, I even notice a light on the front. And it's, it's not a shaped boat. It looks, it, it, it looks like it's maybe a flat-bottom boat with some kind of a, something sticking up at the front, end. and there's a guy at the back with a pole, almost like a gondolier. But that can't be right, I'm looking at it, and then it hit me, oh yeah, they're probably frog gigging. And if you're not from the south, you also might not be familiar with frog gigging. That's where you basically take a miniature pitchfork on a very long pole, and you go out at night with a light, you shine it on the frogs, you stab them with the fork, and you bring them in so that you can eat their legs frog uh, Froggeekin is very popular down here, and that's always done at night, so uh, that explained the long pole, the light on the front, um, and a flat-bottom boat. So, we went back to drinking our beer, finished it up, and uh, went on back home. And I asked him, you know, to tell me about the city, and he really couldn't tell me much of anything about it. I even went to the local library, because this was before the time where you could get on the internet and find anything in the world. And at the library, there was very little. I just couldn't find anything on the history of this place. So just a few days ago, I was talking to my assistant at work, and I was telling her this story. And she said, no, there's not an underground or an underwater city. That's crazy. And I said, I'm going to find it. I'm going to look it up. So I looked it up, and I found it. And now what I found was very interesting. This story I just told you happened, as much as I hate to admit it, almost 15 years ago. But I get on the internet, start searching around, and I find the history of a place called Mont And it's in the Ozark Hills, up the White River Valley, uh, on the edge of Beaver Lake, which is where we went. And Beaver Lake's a nice big lake up there, lots of development around it. But anyway, to get to the point, I found, all, I found out all about Mont there was a guy who built the place who was an interesting person in and of, of, his, in and of his self. Oh, I can't talk, excuse me. His name was William Coyne, that was his nickname, Coyne, Harvey. And he was a businessman, a politician, a lecturer, an author. He made most of his money uh, silver mining and also writing some books. And he was also involved in the presidential campaign of William James Bryan. And that probably helped him sell his books as well. But he took all of his money. Coin Harvey took all of his money and went up to this place where there was no development, nothing around. Bought a bunch of land and decided to build great, nice hotels and resorts. So he built two hotels that were built out of. They were log cabins and they were the largest log buildings in the world. And he also had this tower section. Which is one of the earliest examples of a multi-story cement structure, and that happened to be the tower that me and Mark were hanging out at that night. And that's really the only part of the structure that can be seen when the lake's at normal levels. But um, oh, and it also had the first indoor swimming pool in Arkansas. Interesting in enough. But anyway, to to get to the point and, and tie this all back into the story, the the most interesting part about Point Harvey happened later on in life he was was very eccentric and his hotels ended up going under in, in part because of his odd rules at his hotel but after it went under he was convinced that this had nothing to do with bad business management on his part but rather that this was a sign of the end of the world so the first thing he did was build an amphitheater a large amphitheater that had no plans he just kind of had it built as people went along and you can still see part of the amphitheater it's still there it's partially submerged but it's still there but the amphitheater was also built next to what was going to be one of the world's largest obelisks since he was convinced that the world was going to end he wanted to have a structure something to uh, be there for all of time and he wanted to put uh, like a time capsule essentially essentially in this obelisk and he thought that the mountains were going to fall in so he had to build this obelisk taller than the mountains. Well, the furthest he ever got was a retaining wall, and that's still submerged, but when the lake levels are low, you can also see the retaining wall where uh, the obelisk was to be built. Now, when he had his hotels, and they were still up and running, uh, there wasn't a direct route there. So from the train station, he actually had people uh, ferried to his hotel, and there were bridges that they could walk across, uh, looking at an area that he built, and the bridges would go across it. and when I was reading about this I just instantly flashed back to that night 15 years ago when I read how he had them ferried across he had gondoliers who would use the poles and push the gondolas and that's how people went back and forth and then it hit me that maybe what I saw that night was not people broad gigging maybe I somehow connected with the past Then again, maybe I just had too much beer to drink. I'll let you decide. So each month I pick something that is somewhat of a theme to discuss. And one of them that I want to discuss this month as a theme is scripting entire shows and acting. Now, I was recently speaking with Justin Gentry about all of this, about scripting shows and acting and all of that, and Justin is an actual actor in New York City, so he kind of has a leg up on me when it comes to the whole acting thing. It's something that I need to learn more about and strive to do so uh, whenever, that, whenever I can. Most of my knowledge of acting comes from being an attorney in the courtroom, and uh, I've always gone in with the idea of acting as if I'm an attorney who is going to win this case and more often than not that's been a pretty good approach for me to use but let's get back to the whole discussion on scripting and acting Um, what Justin was talking to me about in particular was the idea of scripting entire shows not just scripting routines and when you think about bizarre magic obviously your routines are tightly scripted they need to have that beginning middle and end In fact, that's really what makes Bizarre Magic, Bizarre Magic, as far as I'm concerned. And that same idea needs to carry through when you're looking at doing an entire show. When you're wanting to script a Bizarre show, you need a thread, a theme that's consistent, something that carries the action forward. And for me, what I've really worked with is the idea of what do you want to get across to your audience? What are you trying to present to them? And more and more I've started to realize the importance of this. I don't need just a a theme that will make the routines fit together. I need to think about what I want my audience to experience and then how do I go about allowing them to experience that. And that's something that me and Justin discussed as well in, in his acting trade. You know, there's, he was saying, there's this idea of what does your audience experience? How do they feel? And one of the questions that he posed to me, and, and I will likewise pose to you as listeners, is if you're presenting a routine and you have an audience member who reacts really strongly to that routine, if they lose it on stage, what do you do? Do you continue forward? Do you stop? How do you respond to that? And something that Justin was saying is that, you know, acting training as an actor really helps in that situation and then you know applying it to my own life being a trial attorney that really helps I've learned to be prepared for the unexpected at all times and and I dare say that as a performer if you've got an entire show and you haven't thought through what all can happen then you're probably not ready to perform the other thing I will say is no matter how well you prepare for that show and you consider all contingencies something will happen that you did not expect to happen that's just how it goes and so you need to be ready for that anyway I'm I'm getting off course a little bit let me get back to the idea of what do you want to get across to your audience Um, like I said just having something that ties the routines together is not really enough for me I want to create a certain feeling and I need to figure out how to create that feeling and and for me, something that I've really enjoyed is the nostalgia of going back to childhood, uh, and couple that with the idea that nothing's impossible if you truly believe you can do virtually anything that you want to do. So those are the ideas of what I you know what I really want to get across to my audience, and and that leaves plenty of room for bizarre presentations. Think about when you're a kid; everything is new, the world is full of wonder, but things are also scary. Things are big. Things are frightening. You have to learn to cope with death and, and all kinds of new things. That you kind of get jaded as you get older. You forget about it, and that's something that I, I like to play it with. But um, after you have your theme, once you figured out what you want your audience to feel, you need to have each effect move that theme forward. In other words, you, your effects have to move you along the continuum of emotion that you want your audience to feel. Now one other thing I want to say there, Bizarre Magic, you know, the, a lot of those those routines and bizarre are kind of the spooky, the scary, the horrific, the supernatural, all of that. And, and that's fine. But for me in a show, I really want to give my audience more of a um, I, I want more variety. And for me personally, as I've re scripted my show for about the fifth or sixth time I start out pretty light and have some fun and some laughs and as I move I get progressively darker because at the start I want my audience to go along with me I want them to to feel like they're part of the group and go along for the ride and let's just have a fun time so the next thing is what routines do you perform now the routines need to match the stories and you know if you're routining a show and you have a certain theme you want to carry through an emotion you want to carry through Sometimes that's hard to work with the routines that you have, that you've been using, that are comfortable to you. And um, if the routines are really personal to you, though, something that really means something to you, something you've been working with a lot, then you can probably find a way to script that routine to work within the context of your show. But the biggest thing when you're considering what routines to perform is you can't be afraid to scrap a routine. Sometimes you're just going to have to do it. You're going to have to ditch it. And go for something else. So that leads me next to character and acting. For me, the show needs to fit with your character because if you're not sincere, an audience is going to feel that. Now, if you're a great actor, you can probably fake that sincerity. Uh, the the majority of us out there are probably not great actors. I, I'm I'm one of those in that group. I readily admit. So my character is basically me. It is a different me than the me that you meet every day, but it's still basically me. And since it's me, and most of my stories are based on my history and my family and my life as I've lived it, I'm not faking anything. And since I'm not faking anything, the audience feels my sincerity and they connect with me plus for me as someone who is not a a great actor when I tell stories about my uncle for instance I can really tap into that feeling and that emotion because I lived it it was real to me so it's something that I can use and I think that helps when I want to connect with my audience and if you're a performer on stage the most important thing you can do is connect with your audience because if they don't care about you then they don't care about your show. So hopefully some of that's been um, thought-provoking. And uh, send me your comments or feedback. i look forward to it. Alright, it's time again for your brief history of Bizarre Magic. And this month we're going to cover the one and only Tony Doc Shields. Uh, Doc Shields was one of the early pioneers of the Bizarre Magic movement. He's a painter, a cryptozoologist, and some people would say just an outright prankster. I don't think anyone would call him a fraud, per se, because he's way too much fun for that. But uh, he, he's claimed to have taken pictures of the Loch Ness Monster and he's taken pictures of fairies. And uh, that was kind of a side, a side deal that he did, as well as his painting at the time. But his involvement with Bizarre Magic lasted for two decades, and his work was very well received. And if you've read any of his work, you'll see that it often has a strong focus on the theatrical, though there's plenty of practical routines as well. But, you know, I highly recommend that you read some of Doc Shields' stuff if you haven't, because his approach to Bizarre Magic is really, really nice. It, it is some of the older stuff from the beginning of the Bizarre Magic movement, so some of it seems a little dated by today's standards, but uh, some of his theatrical stuff is, is great and very, very inspiring. Unfortunately, Shills has dropped out of the magic scene. He is still a painter and is a successful painter. And uh, even though he's dropped out of the magic scene, his books are, are I worth a worth a read not only for the history, but the solid performance. He wrote a lot of articles and books, and some of his books are 13, Something Strange, Demons, Darklings, and Doppelgangers, Entertaining with ESP, and then there were three. He did that with uh, Roy Fromer and Tony Andruzzi. The Shields Effect in 1976, which is something that people still look for, and that's definitely worth a read. And uh, he did The Cantric Codex in 1989, and that was the last release that he had. Anyway, that's uh, some of your bizarre magic history this month, and I recommend that you get some of his books and check him out. So just like every month now is the time for the advertising, but things are a little bit different now. As you know in the past I've advertised my wares uh, on paulprater.com, specifically I have The Secret Key and The Witch of Glastonbury, two products that I've released and I do have more products coming out in the future. They're in the works and some of them are already completed and kind of out with a few people to play around with and give me their feedback on them. But The biggest news is not that I have new products coming out shortly, but rather that I am now merging in with Alchemy Moon, which is run by Christopher Gould. If you're not familiar with Alchemy Moon products, they're top-notch. The level of artistry and care that goes into making those props are really good. And if you happen to have the Witch of Glastonbury, you already know that Chris Gould helped me with uh, part of the design on one of the cards and also submitted his own presentation for the witch of glastonbury and we've kind of been sharing ideas back and forth for a while and we both mutually respected each other's work so it was just time it seemed for us to merge it just seemed like something that really made sense so things that i think are really strong about this partnership is that you will have the option to get good quality props Uh, Both of us have an artistic eye and a background in the arts. So that really helps with the preparation of the props and the presentation of the props. So uh, I think that's a good, strong quality of me and Chris working together. Second, we both believe in customer service. We want to do what makes our customers happy. And uh, hopefully that's something that we can do for everyone out there. While we provide you with those excellent props. Another thing that's more on the uh, strictly business side of it. That's going to be a great benefit. Is I'm going to have all of the existing Alchemy Moon props here in the United States. And Chris Gould will have my props in Europe. Therefore we can save on shipping for our customers regardless of where they live. So that's going to be a big benefit that's uh, unique to our partnership. Now, with all that being said, the prices on my products will go up. I put a post on the Magic Cafe about that, and, you know, I really had a desire to keep prices down, and I think I can still do that more or less, but I need to be fair to myself as well, and I've really been vastly underpaying myself for the amount of time that I put into the props. Now, one of the things I will do, and I've already done and will continue to do in the future, is look for ways to streamline the production of the props while still keeping the quality very high so that I can help keep prices low. However, prices are going to increase uh, pretty much within uh, most likely a few days of you listening to this or it may have already happened. Now, you may wonder about Alchemy Moon and the Paul Prater products. When that goes live and official, our official launch date is Halloween. So before long, we will be uh, restructuring the Alchemy Moon And I will have a notice up on my website. And before too much longer, all of the products will go through that one central source. This is something that me and Chris are very excited about. From some of the comments on the boards, it seems like a lot of you are very excited about it. And we look forward to be able to serving you with good quality, unique, artistic props. So, last month I did a review of... The Sword, one of my favorite bands, and happened to see them recently. They came back through Little Rock on tour and uh, met the guys, got to give them my card, told them about the podcast. Really great time. But while I was there, I also wanted to speak with some of the other bands, and I sat down to do an interview with the singer of one of the opening acts, and I was going to put it on the podcast. Granted, he does not do magic, but he does do entertainment and does performance, and they've traveled all around the U.S. and Europe doing performances. Unfortunately, I was not able to get a complete interview, but I got a very, very short part of one. I figured I'd go ahead and put it up here, if nothing else, for the humor in it. I've played it again and again, and I just keep laughing. If you have children in the car with you, you might want to cover their ears, Uh, there is some foul language. But, take a listen to this. It's a lot of fun. Alright, I'm sitting here in Little Rock and I'm sitting Damn, here I with, lost
1: my weed.
0: Yeah, I'm with CT. Okay, go
1: ahead.
0: <laughs> As you heard. Now, I've known, I've known Chris for a long time. And what I want to know, first of all, is how did you get to where you are now with the band you're
1: playing with? Um, lots of, uh...
0: Oh, fuck. You gotta stop, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll start. Ah, uh, the life of a rock star, huh? When your most pressing concern is where you left your weed. Oh, well, that one really makes me laugh. On to the next part, though. So I had a suggestion from one of my listeners, and his suggestion was that I review some more items. As I explained to him, one of the problems is that I don't, own a whole lot of bizarre items. I buy a lot of books and I read a lot and that's primarily um, what I buy. So if you have an item out there that you would like reviewed I would uh, invite you to send it to me. My contact information can be found on my website www.paulprater.com that's If you would like a product or item that you have created, reviewed, feel free to send it to me. Please be aware that I will give an honest review one way or another whether I like it or not, but I always try to find the positive in anything. So far all the reviews I've done have been positive because they have all been items that I have liked. I primarily reviewed books that I feel have been overlooked or um, not read or suggested a lot to the Bizarre Magic Fraternity. So that's why I've suggested some of the books that I've suggested. Um, This month is not going to be any different. I'm going to do another review of a book that I don't hear a lot about, but personally it's one of my favorites. So I'm going to get into the review. It's The Dark Waltz by Michael Frog. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get into the book review that I was speaking of, and this month I'm reviewing another book that's an older book but it really is one of my favorite bizarre magic books. It's The Dark Waltz by Michael Froughton. He starts his book with some of his theory on the magician and the creating process, how he goes about creating his works. And then he jumps right into a wonderful opening routine that's flashy and visual while at the same time being very atmospheric. And the next couple of effects talk about how he learned magic and and his, his teacher. It's very interesting. And Michael continues on in parts of the book with his theory on uh, the magician and the importance of ritual. Later in the book, Michael discusses the spook show, seances, and viewing your magic with meaning, character development, and several other relevant topics. Uh, these ideas of Michael's, his theory, is sprinkled throughout the effects. And the great thing about Michael's theory is that it's not just self-indulgent babbling or filler material his theory and his idea on magic and the practice of magic is really very interesting reading Uh, next he has a routine that you can tell is really personal to Michael he's a violinist and the routine involves a violin among some other props now whether you can perform it or not it's worth the read just for the finely crafted story Michael's written a wonderful story that would be entertaining in its own right without any magic going along with it. He also has several routines that would be appropriate for seance, including a new twist on a wrapping hand that looks very organic and very natural. It doesn't look like it could be uh, staged or a, a magic trick. I say that in quotes in any way. It looks very good. He also has a routine that's appropriate for radio, which is always something that's handy for the performing bizarrest out there. And he has one that uh, he admits is a work in progress that involves a lot of fire. It sounds like a very interesting routine. I've not tried it. I have read it, though, and and like it. Um, Also, would you like to know how balloon animals can be used in a bizarre routine? If you'd like to know that, then you'll have to check out his book. It's The Dark Waltz by Michael Frotton. You can pick it up at library.com. That's L-Y-B-R-A-R-Y. .com. There's a lot of uh, magic books there, and his is one of my favorites. I highly recommend it, so go check it out. So as I said on my last podcast, I recently had the privilege of going to Chicago. Had a wonderful time, and my first night there, I was able to sit down and have dinner with Neil Tobin, who does his show Supernatural Chicago, which has been going for seven years and recently was named as one of the top ten things to do in Chicago by TripAdvisor. so I would like to say congratulations to Neil for that and while I was there I, I had the opportunity to sit there and have a wonderful wonderful meal and a few drinks with him and uh, it ended up lasting several hours and really just kind of pick his brain about uh, some of the stuff that he does and what drives him and uh, while I was there I also had the opportunity to see his show so, I wanted to do a quick review of Supernatural Chicago. First, I got there early because I wasn't sure where the club was in relation to my hotel, and it ended up being very, very close. I actually could have walked, but I don't uh, regret getting there early at all. First of all, when you buy a ticket for the show, which is very modestly priced, it also comes with two free drinks. Uh, it's pretty hard to beat. And that alone would be about half of the value of a ticket for going out to a club in Chicago. Now, this kind of club was just my type of club. When I first got there, they were playing uh, rock music and uh, had videos up on video screens since you never get to see music videos anymore. I thought that was great. And I also got to speak with this uh, very nice looking goth chick who was working the door and uh, get my two free drinks. So, I actually had a good time getting there early before the show. Then once it was time for the show to begin, we went downstairs. The show is downstairs in a club. You go into a second room and there are chairs set up around a relatively small stage. So it is a, a small group and therefore it's pretty interactive. And the show itself is highly structured and detailed routines and yet there's fun injected into the routines at the same time. Uh, it's it's not a fast-paced show. It's it's one that's, uh, as I say, highly structured. It moves along at a deliberate pace. Now Neil does use visual props in the forms of photos on large cards to to help illustrate the stories that he's telling. Now for me, this was my first trip to Chicago, and I did not know a lot of the history of Chicago. And that was another fun thing about the show to me is I got to learn some about the the haunted history of Chicago or some of the The odd history there that I wasn't aware of, so that to me was fun. It was it was educational. While I was there, I looked around and and the audience seemed to be engaged and enjoying the show, which is always a good thing, obviously. And there was a fun atmosphere there. It was it was because it was a an interesting club. And even though I just told you I had a good time at the beginning and liked it, um, had a very good time after the show was over too. I ended up staying in the club. pretty late that night and dropped quite a bit of money there too, Uh, great time. Anyway, Neil also brought free cupcakes because it was Friday the 13th when I saw the show and he was getting married that same weekend, so uh, a big night for Neil. Um, The finale, I really wanted to mention that. People seem to really be in the finale of the show. I'm not going to give it away and tell you what all happened, but I will tell you that there was spirit communication. Involving someone out of the audience who clearly was not a stooge or setup of any kind. Uh, the person who was selected from the audience seemed to be just as blown away by the spirit communication as everyone else in the audience was. So it was uh, a good finale, a good end to the show. Very solid, very strong. The one thing that I'll have to say that took away from the show somewhat is uh, partway through. The club turned from a rock club to a dance club. So it was dance and techno music playing, which you could hear downstairs. Um, but, you know, Neil did a good job, though, at keeping the audience's attention. So it wasn't a, a major uh, problem. But that did take away from it somewhat. But all in all, it was a good time. If you're in Chicago and you want to learn a little bit more about the history and see a show full of uh, mentalism with a uh, really strong ending in particular, Then I would recommend you go see Supernatural Chicago. Now, as I said, I had the pleasure of having a nice dinner with Neil, and unfortunately for all of you listeners out there, I kind of hogged most of his time. And I had intended on doing an interview with him, but didn't get the chance to until he had to go. So I do have uh, an interview with Neil, although it is short, and I, I apologize for that, listeners you can blame me for uh, sitting there and enjoying his company too much and not getting to the business of the podcast. But I will close my mouth now and let Neil speak for himself. Well, I'm standing here with Neil Tobin after having a wonderful dinner and a lot of good conversation. And I had a few questions for him for the podcast. Neil, first of all, what got you into Bizarre Magic?
1: Well, I got into Bizarre Magic when as an adult, I rediscovered what interests me most about magic, and that is doing things that mess with people's sense of reality, that make them question what is real and what isn't. Uh, Because in our world, those lines seem to be drawn, perhaps with razor-like precision by scientists and others, and I think that a big part of what we need to do is blur those lines. All right, and what has been the highlight of your career so far? Uh, Probably... I was at uh, a meeting of the minds uh, which is run by the psychic entertainers association where I had the rare pleasure of performing a max maven effect for max maven uh, that was that was uh, gratifying and terrifying at the same time that's great and where do you see your career going in the next few years well I'm going to continue t- doing theater I uh I come from a theater background and see what we do as magicians and psychic entertainers as being marvelous tools for larger theatrical presentations rather than just to do magic shows.
0: All right. And what is the best reaction or response you've gotten at a show?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what piece I'm doing. Uh, for, for some things, I think the best response is laughter and other stuff is stunned silence. And I've gotten certainly my share of both. Uh, At the end of the show, it's very typical for people to come up to me and ask me how long I've had these powers or uh, if I will read their auras or if I will contact the dead for them. Uh, I think those are all valid reactions. But maybe my favorite reaction of all is when people tell me their ghost stories after seeing my show. Because then I know I've really touched them uh, since so much of what I do is about Telling them my stories.
0: All right. And tell us one thing about yourself that people don't know. Something outside of magic.
1: I am an advertising writer. I, uh, I sing and dance. And uh, I play trombone.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And guys, check out his website. So this month I'm going to do something a little bit different as well. And this month I'm going to do a movie review if you look on my website there is a link to the trailer for this movie so that you can check it out for yourself and get a little more information about it but uh, i don't watch a lot of movies but when i see something that strikes me as useful to us in the bazaar i'll share it and i like medieval history and i've done some reenacting in my time also had a business making medieval armor for a while so i often look for movies depicting this time period i'm still really interested in it and in fact. This isn't a side, but I think I want to get back into the medieval fighting. I really enjoyed doing that. But I stumbled upon a movie about Vikings, and it's called Valhalla Rising. Now, one of the things I always found gruesome was one of the ways that the Vikings allegedly tortured their enemies. It was called the Blood Eagle, or Blood Angel. It said that the Vikings would break the ribs by the spine and pull them out through the back so that they looked like bloody wings. And they'd pull the lungs out through their back and sprinkle salt on the wounds. It's pretty vicious. It makes for a terrifying mental image. You know, really this is only mentioned in the Scaldic verses, so it's kind of disputed as to whether this was poetic license or a true piece of barbaric history. And the problem with trying to figure out anything about Scaldic verse is it was written to be an intentionally vague cryptic, so you know, where do you go with that? Reading Scaldic verse is kind of like trying to make sense of Nostradamus. You can say whatever you'd like for it to say. And I'm sorry, none of this is relevant to the movie, but some information you might be able to work into a routine or something. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. But back to the movie review. Often in Bizarre, we try to create a feeling. Usually that's a sense of doom or unease. That's one thing I thought this movie did really good at. Uh, The movie really does have an overall sense of foreboding doom and more importantly it does it with very few words now i will say right off the bat the movie is strange and without much in the way of words it's sometimes hard to follow um part of the movie is literally shot in a fog bank with no speaking and it goes on for like 10 minutes of movie time so you can't hardly see anything and there are no words. Interesting, you know. And if you look at the reviews on the movie, they're mixed. Honestly, a lot of people hated it, saying it was pointless. And, uh, but compared to most American cinema, it is definitely different. However, the one thing virtually everyone does say is that it's artistic and beautiful. And I agree. And that's why I think it's worth watching. Uh, you know, there are a lot of scenes of, like, the sky and the mountains but it's not. I found the movie to be suspenseful, beautiful, and dark. Now, if you happen to have Netflix, you can watch it streaming. And if you don't like it, you can always just turn it off. So, anyway, that's... uh, You know, I I will give a little more information on the film. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but basically it's about a, a slave who is a fighter who joins up with a group of Christian barbarians who are going to fight in the Holy Land that end up getting off course. And that's as much as I'll tell you about the plot itself. So um, that's it for my movie review. I probably won't have another one in a while since summer's here and I don't spend much time in front of the television. So check it out. See what you think. several months I've presented stories to my listeners and asked you to come up with a possible routine for the story and this month I'm going to do something a little bit different. I've got a story that's been sitting in my notebook for a while and I haven't really figured out what I want to do with the story. So what I'm going to do is give you the presentation as, as I have written it so far and I would ask you to listen to that presentation and figure out what you're going to do with the story. And if you come up with something, I would appreciate it if you would email it to me at paul at com. I'll give you credit for it and uh, share it with the listeners if you like, and if not, that's fine too. Anyway, I'll get into the story. The magician enters the room, holding a box in his hands. He sets the box on the table. An artifact can stir up memories of the past, but can it actually make a physical manifestation of the past? Some think so. In the early 1900s, the town of Hexham was cursed by the appearance of a wolf. This wolf was killing sheep in the town. The savagery in which the sheep were killed was serious enough that the killings made front-line news in the local papers. The wolf was known as the Wolf of Allendale. There was a committee formed, and hunting parties were formed to find this wolf. The town even went so far as to hire a professional tracker to attempt to find the wolf. All attempts to track it were ineffective, there were rumors that maybe there was an entire pack of wolves, or even that it might be a werewolf. However soon, the wolf attack stopped, and the wolf was forgotten, at least for the time. The legend of the Wolf of Allendale was resurrected in 1972 when two young boys were digging in their garden. The Robson boys found two small heads in their garden. The heads they found were very similar to this one. At that point, the magician pulls out a small stone head and shows it to his audience. They took these heads into their house, and strange things started to happen. It was said that the heads moved on their own. Things started breaking, glass was found on the Robson girl's bed, and weird flowers bloomed at the spots where the heads were found. While this may have been strange, this was fairly benign compared to what happened next. The Robson's neighbor claimed that her and her daughter saw a strange wolf-headed creature walking down their hallway. They screamed and the creature jumped down the stairs with a soft thud, as if it had padded paws, and rummaged through the house, as though looking for something. They later ventured downstairs and found the front door open. While the Robsons passed the heads on to Dr. Ann Ross for examination, Dr. Ross had several similar heads. She believed they were of Celtic origin. Shortly after Dr. Ross received the heads, she had a similar experience. She woke one night to find a large shape with black hair against her door jamb. She got up to see what it was, and the shape ran down the hall and out of the house. A few days later, her daughter experienced the same thing, and was scared witless. Well, Dr. Ross gave her collection away. For a short time, the collection was displayed in the British Museum, but there were continuing stories of strange happenings. These heads were taken off display and eventually sold to private owners. I was able to get one of the heads, and this is one of them. I, too, have found some strange things happen around these heads, and I would like to share something. Well, listener, that's where my notebook ends. I have the story prepared, but what exactly happens? Now, obviously, there were some suggestions in the story before uh, the the actual story. Um, the heads would move on their own, and uh, glass would break, and weird flowers bloomed at the spot where the head was found. You know that that stuff's kind of interesting, and maybe that's something to work on on a on a technique to do with the prop, but um. Just want you to think about it and uh send me your ideas. I've basically given you the story, so you give me the method or the technique. It ought to be a good experiment. I look forward to seeing what you guys send in. Wow, so I get this whole thing put together and I'm looking at doing this final piece and I realize that I've got almost an hour of material now. Uh, It seems like these podcasts just keep getting longer, not intentionally, it's just uh, how it's happening. And as listeners, you guys seem to appreciate that. I've gotten some good feedback. I would welcome you to go ahead and let me know what you think, what you would like to hear, what have you. Um, I have taken some suggestions from some of my listeners, and in fact, this month's discussion was... uh, from Justin Gentry, something he wanted to hear discussed and talked about, and uh, hopefully everyone else found that interesting as well. So if you have ideas for what you would like to hear, um, products that you want reviewed, anything like that, feel free to contact me. Of course, my website is www.paulprater.com, that's P-A-U-L-P-R-A-T-E-R.com. I'd welcome you to go over there and check that out and um, my email address is paul at paulprater.com, so feel free to shoot me an email. I'm also on Skype, although my time is often limited. I will do my best to get in touch with you whenever I can. Um, Look forward to hearing from you guys. I'm enjoying doing this podcast each month, and hopefully you're getting something out of it as well.